Emerald podcast series. Research that makes a difference. Hi, I'm Charlie Swift, and in this episode, I'm joined by three academics and practitioners who are researching self-compassion and its impacts on individuals, families, and workplaces. Our conversation considers the definition, application, and utility of self-compassion practices, why they're increasingly needed, and what the common barriers to adopting them are. We explore the links between populations as apparently diverse as student midwives and military veterans, young parents and corporate employees, and discuss the need for further research on developing, designing, facilitating and evaluating self-compassion, education and training programmes. My first guest is Dr Mary Steen. I'm Mary Steen. I'm the Professor of Midwifery in the Nursing, Midwifery and Health Department and that's at the University of Northumbria in the United Kingdom and I have several visiting professorships in other countries around the world. My second guest is Dr Diane Wepper. Hello, my name is Dr Diane Wepper. I'm the Associate Professor and Professional Lead Mental Health in the Faculty of Health Studies at the University of Bradford. I'm also joined by Dr Stephen McGee. My name is Dr Stephen McGee and I'm the Assistant Dean for Student Success and Associate Clinical Professor within the College of Nursing at The Ohio State University in Columbus, Ohio. I began by asking Mary to define self-care and self-compassion. It's interesting, when I was starting the education and training with nurses and midwives, they were a little bit, oh, we're not sure what self-compassion is. And they quite liked me to say that I was educating and teaching compassionate self-care. It's interesting how people will accept different concepts. Now, to me, self-compassion is having the ability to care for yourself by being aware of your feelings and accepting these when you're experiencing difficult life problems and or work challenges. I mean, Christine Neff, for example, defines self-compassion, being caring and compassionate towards oneself in the face of hardship or perceived inadequacy. And Paul Gilbert in the UK, he stated it's a basic kindness with a deep awareness of the suffering of oneself and other living things coupled with the wish and effort to relieve it. So two important key words there, suffering, and obviously the importance of to relieve it. And Paul Kilper even includes all other living things. So it's around that because you, you can't get around suffering in life. And it is embedded in the Buddhist philosophy, which has been around for 2,500 years, and the three inevitables, which is aging, illness and death. And we try to avoid it. I really looked at self-compassion and tried to see where else it could be deployed. And I actually tried to really articulate in my own mind what it was. Um, And at that particular time, I personally was going through some tough challenges. I had some personal bereavement. I'm of an age now where, like we all do in life, where we start to lose those around you that you love dearly. But when I think of self-compassion, I suppose uh, I see it as being able to to acknowledge pain instead of turning away from it. And I think self-compassion acknowledges life is hard for everyone. And that's exactly what Mary has just kind of pointed out there. And I also think part of self-compassion is not to self-judge. As I know, my mind always likes to seek for flaws in my character. So it's about trying to not label yourself as not good enough in lots of different ways. I also think it's about trying to be kind to yourself and others. And a huge part of self-compassion is this notion of acceptance. 
you know, such that you are open to your thoughts and your feelings and you don't really hide away from them. And I think there was a period of time uh, in everyone's life where, where we've all done that before, where something, you know, has been difficult to deal with in our lives and we've kind of tried to hide away from it. I also think there's something in there in self-compassion that relates to validation. Because I know I say to myself, come on, Stephen, it's time to man up when you have those difficult situations. But that in some ways is like providing an invalidation to yourself. So going through painful times at work or with family can also leave you slightly disconnected. So I, whenever that occurs in, you know, in my own life and colleagues' lives and uh, when I've seen it occur in, in military colleagues that I've had in the past, it's always really great to spend time with family so that that allows you to connect with people. And I think they are the central tenets of, of, uh, of what self-compassion really is. And I think some of what you've just said that really challenges, if, if I'm thinking about nurses and midwives, they're thinking about their patients, they're not thinking about themselves. And active people in the armed forces, it's about action. Uh, stereotypically, they're very much not thinking about their own feelings. In fact, the, the sort of popular view might be that they're actively encouraged to suppress their feelings so that they can go and do what they need to do. So these are two populations who it might be hard to encourage to look inwards. Is is that fair? Certainly from a military perspective, absolutely, Charlie. I think you've hit on a, a really important point. And I think there is certain, a certain stigma that's attached to, you know, military members saying that they have an issue. But I think, you know, as a result of the last 10 years of this, those high-tempo operations that occurred in Iraq and Afghanistan, I think people are much more aware of the issues that operational service can do. And also, I think people are much more aware of the issues that people have due to social media, you know, and it's very much in the public's eye. So I think people are much more reflective and open to, to looking at self-compassion, uh, certainly military members looking at self-compassion as a potential strategy to ameliorate those mental health risks that you get as a result of serving in uh, austere environments. So it's sort of quite a practical tool, really, um, rather than an indulgence. <laughs> Absolutely. And uh, it's looking at forgiveness, too. And what Kristen Neff says, it's good enough for health professionals and parents. You know, I've done a good enough job. You know, I'm good enough. And um, really trying to forgive ourselves, like Stephen said, you know, like manning up and I've got to be at this certain standard and this level. Whereas uh, sometimes we've really got to dial it back and, and I think Mary could probably take it from here in terms of looking at what I've done is good enough for today. Yeah, we've just published a systematic review and one of my postdoctoral students took the lead, Suika Hoffman. And interestingly enough, we looked at self-compassion education for parents and their families while caring for their children. Seven of the 10 studies that met the inclusion criteria were actually parents with children with additional needs. And what was being demonstrated was that it, it did help them to cope when they were struggling as a parent, to give themselves the self-care and self-compassion that they need. But I wanted to go back because you did mention the nurses and the midwives when you were talking and veterans. And we're doing here because I'm back up in the northeast of England at the moment. I'm at the University of Northumbria. And they're very keen to do work with nurses and midwives because we're not in a good place at the moment especially in the UK I don't know if you heard I mean first time what in 136 years nurses are going on strike you know because the conditions in the National Health Service are not good how can you be compassionate to someone else if you're not compassionate to yourself 
And what we're finding is it's not only the nurses and midwives, it's the next generation, it's our students. Our students are really struggling. And perhaps the added pressure because of the COVID pandemic, you know, we're all coming out of that, aren't we? They're all struggling. Christine Neff talks about the three interacting components with a positive and a negative element. So, for example, to say self-kindness versus self-judgment, common humanity versus isolation, and mindfulness versus over-identification. So with the self-kindness, it's like befriending yourself. So you'd give yourself the same kindness you would give someone else. And not to be so judgmental. Steve just talked about, you know, the self-critic. I mean, I remember, obviously, you can't put a wise head on young shoulders, as my grandfather used to say. But I remember being very stressed as um, an adolescent. And my dad's a true Yorkshireman, our Wilf. And he'd say, oh, you're making a mountain out of a molehill. You know, you're catastrophizing, which we do, don't we? And you'd say, well, you're not going in that direction. Just live in the present, the here and now. And obviously from Yorkshire, have a cup of tea and it'll be right. You know, all these little strategies, but they actually worked. And I am really concerned for our students now, the next generation. There's a lot of pressure on them at the moment to actually study and get a qualification and actually live. Um, I think life in general has become quite challenging. Yes, and then they're also training for a role that is incredibly responsible for somebody else's life. Um, So are they feeling that pressure entering that profession as well? Well, they are. And remember, you are going to be accountable. You're accountable for what you do and you're accountable for what you don't do as um, a health professional. And also the mentors in practice, if they're suffering from compassion or empathy fatigue as some people describe it and are burnt out how likely are they going to be able to mentor um, when the students are in clinical practice we're in a vicious circle now in both veteran environment and the healthcare environment I'm sort of thinking that the, the public often talks about both types of people as heroes Diane I wonder if you could just give me your thoughts on that term and and its effects Yeah, it's um, quite a loaded term, isn't it, a hero? Because to have a hero, you have to have someone that you've saved. You know, you have to have a victim, quote, unquote. And so, yeah, it's very detrimental to healthcare professionals that um, may feel they have to live up to that that standard. No, I I agree, Diane. And, um, you know, that term hero can cast a shadow sometimes. And, uh, you know, the half-life of that, hero term can dissipate very quickly as well and you know notwithstanding the fact that Mary made some great points about the current state in the United Kingdom you know we have nurses going on strike at the moment uh, but also that's a very similar perspective to the United States you know the the nurses in New York in the state of New York are, are looking at strike action and feeling very undervalued at the moment especially within this post pandemic environment but also you know, we are in the midst of a cost of living crisis and those individuals who are coming into the profession are having to deal with so much more uh, difficult circumstances than I did when I came into nursing in 1988. You know, many of our students are, are have issues with food insecurity. Many of our students in the United States have issues, you know, being single parents. Uh, the, the cost of textbooks are hugely expensive. Um, So the stresses that our students are facing at the moment is absolutely huge. 
we are putting some strategies in place to try and ameliorate those risks. It can't be piecemeal. It has to be a national strategy. And I think we're in the United States. We're at the beginning of that work. But, um, yeah, absolutely. That term hero, uh, as Diana quite points out, it is a, a loaded term. Um, you're talking there about um, real food insecurity, um, lack of money. People also have housing issues and so on. And, and this sort of deep fatigue after years of of battling on through the pandemic and losing touch with other people as well, I think. Um, just to play devil's advocate, if do people ever turn around and say, goodness me, I haven't got time for self-compassion. How is that going to put a meal on the table? I always say you can always make time for self-compassion and it's unlearning bad habits and I say to parents when they say they're too busy I says you can always do three minutes like Susan Pollack who's um, done quite a bit of work about self-compassion with parents we can all spare three minutes can't we there's more nobody more important than you because like I said if you are not well and maintain your health and well-being how can you care for anyone else it has to start with you and we have to recognize that too yeah, I, I absolutely agree. Charlie, that was a great question, by the way. Um, you know, because I, I think there probably are many people that say they're too busy to do this. But I think when you have that teachable moment, you know, it could be something like going to your doctor uh, for your annual review and your blood pressure is up or your cholesterol is up, you know, and then you have the stress, you know, related response to that then that teachable moment is what certainly pushes people towards self-compassion. Now, I've used a couple of examples that are a little bit severe and extreme, but it could be just feeling stressed at work. You know, that can be the teachable moment. We're all professional people, so we may all, all have been there at one point where we've had to take a step back and say, okay, let's put some strategies in place here because I'm feeling overwhelmed, I'm feeling stressed, you know, I don't feel part of the team. Maybe it's a case of I've tried everything else and I've tried very, very hard, which is I've heard from all three of you that that's what people have been doing. They've been trying very, very hard, but it, they're still not winning. So this is a new strategy they can try. And I think it's being comfortable with being uncomfortable, you know, like sitting with that feeling as well, not feeling like you have to solve it. You know, health professionals are very, you know, nurses, midwives, for example, are very, um, they're great problem solvers and, uh, you know, people in the military as well. And so it would be, okay, I have a problem, I have to solve it because this is what I do in my job. So I have to be task focused and do this, this, this and this. And I think some of those, quote unquote, soft skills around sitting with the emotion and letting it just be uh, is something I think um, health professionals need need to learn more that's quite frightening though isn't it potentially how can people start doing that in a way that doesn't freak them out yeah some of the self-compassion skills um and for example yeah it's quite powerful and you can use you know to calm yourself both of your hands and place the palms over your heart i kind of find that okay and i think i'm going to be okay why am i feeling like this there's a reason something's triggered me um i'm going to just give myself just some calming and some in and out calming breaths and I'm going to put my hands on my heart or some people prefer one hand on the heart and one hand on their abdomen the solar plexus just to take that time out if you like and to just calm and take those breaths and you will and then it can calm your pulse and your blood pressure 
um, there's links, obviously, with doing self-compassion, with actual mental health and also physical health and well-being um, benefits as well. So the physical uh, breathing and the postures that you take up, they're calming you physically. What, what happens next? Well, when you do that, you'll induce a state of calmness and relaxation. And it's OK if you lose concentration because we're human beings and we do. But then to go back to some of the um, sort of self-compassion skills that you can um, learn. And it's interesting because a couple of the students, and I was wanting to look at the difference, obviously, between the male students and the uh, female students, because people were struggling with self-compassion. And they said, is it self-regulation? And I said, what do you mean by that? And when he explained that, he said, um, when I struggle I have to give myself such a hard time I'm my worst critic and it took quite a long time for him to actually realize that he actually can do this he has it with him but he was realizing that there was some under sort of triggers some guilt related trauma that he had to deal with and the evidence I know when we did the veterans review it came out quite strong that self-compassion skills were very good for guilt related trauma no, a great point, Mary. You know, many military service personnel come back with a with a, a wide range of guilt. It could be for you know the catastrophic events that happened, you know, when you were engaging close to to the enemy, or it may have been uh, the loss of a very close colleague. You know, why why them and not me? Because that's something that a lot of military personnel, certainly those colleagues who deployed to Iraq and Afghanistan, you know, that they've had. So guilt, it's not, it's not an obvious, you know, negative feeling that people have coming back from operations. You know, the, the person picking up a newspaper might not realise that, but guilt is a very strong feeling that a lot of active duty and military veterans have. And it was interesting to see that uh, self-compassion had uh, an ability to try to ameliorate and reduce the effects of that guilt feeling, which was, which was really interesting. And I think that's what makes self-compassion really quite unique. I think you have these particular soft touch tools at your fingertips and simple techniques at your fingertips. You know, they're low cost. You don't have to book an appointment for them. And also there are no side effects. So it makes the portability of self-compassion really accessible. And that's why I think we're seeing a move towards self-compassion being integrated into lots and lots of different walks of life there's something there around do i deserve compassion so if if there's guilt about that must be a barrier in itself so it's almost like you need the self-compassion to deal with the guilt but the guilt is going to be a barrier to you accessing it i've been doing some work with bruce perry's uh neurosequential model um in terms of uh, suicide prevention you know you have the brain stem at the bottom of our brain and then you have the midbrain the limbic part of the brain and then the cortical I think there's a real connection there between what we're saying around self-compassion and you know our brain stem keeps us alive doesn't it and it regulates our heart rate and uh, Bruce Perry's come up with another component to f- fight flight and freeze and after the Christchurch earthquakes here in New Zealand he created flock and so what he said is that when they say an earthquake people actually look at other people for some sort of signal what should I do should I run should I duck for cover and so that's now been updated to fight flight freeze and now 
flock. And, you know, our heart rate, like Mary was saying, it's within our brainstem. It really is the primal part of who we are. And then we have the midbrain, which looks at coordination of movement. And so some people, when they're stressed, they like um, rhythm and they may rock or they may go to music and, and that sort of thing. And then the limbic part of the brain is our emotional response to a situation. And then, of course, you have the cortical part, which is around empathy, controlling yourself, um, and things like literacy. So I think there's something around the brain that we, with self-compassion, it's trying to tap into those different components of our brain. So so say you lose your keys, it doesn't matter what you're trying to say to yourself, where are my keys, the cortical part of our brain. If um, our heart rate is up high, our brainstem is saying you're stressed, there's no way you can access the, the cortical part of your brain to say, where are my keys? So it all comes down to heart rate, fight, flight, freeze, flock component of our brain. So we have to really calm our brainstem to be able to access other parts of our higher level function of our brains. That's, that sort of parallels with um, Maslow's hierarchy of needs or something, isn't it? I've, I've know, I have to know I'm physically safe before I can start doing something creative or emotive or companionable. Absolutely. I, I was also interested in two of you there mentioned, uh, uh, say, a learning moment or when your heart is calmer, I'm feeling physically calmer. And then as Diane's explained, then my sort of higher thinking skills could come in. And I'm going to be curious about what was it that made me feel stressed and just investigate that a little. I think it's having the skills to reflect on why did you feel like that and and what we talked about earlier all about the acceptance and that's how self-compassion can help you because you know somebody might say something or upset you and you think oh and then you don't react as positively as you could have done and then you have to reflect and you think well what was it that triggered me why why do I feel hurt and it's okay to feel like this you know, not to avoid it, to accept those um, emotions and feelings. Somebody might have been very rude to me, which can happen, you know, when you're at work and you're thinking, well, I don't know what's going on in their life. I don't want to take that too personally. But what's triggered me, I'm going to have to accept these feelings and then I can move on and I know it'll get better. But we're often we try to avoid it, but ultimately it will build up in your emotional tank, as we call it. I know Christine Neff tells a great story when she was flying from the States over to London um, and her son's autistic and she realised that she has to remain calm if there's an issue, you know, on the aeroplane and then he will calm, otherwise it will escalate and it's kind of developing those skills of giving yourself compassion when things are not going quite well. These strategies are all designed to try and allow you to become conditioned to be able to cope in stressful environments. And you have to practice these strategies. You know, some of the strategy, the strategy Mary mentioned earlier on about the hand on the, the heart, uh, there are breathing exercises that you can do, that you, that you can practice. I, I think it's about trying to, to wear it lightly. You know, don't, don't take it to heart. Don't let it fester in your, in, in your brain, but it's about trying to wear it as lightly as you possibly can. And that's essentially what self-compassion is, is trying to do. Mm, so intercepting the blame, the self-blame that, that can pile in there, and also the, the fear of the, of the big emotions. Well, absolutely. And it's, again, it's about self-criticism because we know the brain's got neuroplastic 
properties so it can evolve over time. So it's about trying to condition your brain to not go into that place. And those, you know, self-compassion is, is a really nice group of little techniques that you can do uh, to try and stop your brain from going into those difficult areas. Diane, we've been talking about a range of sort of uh, life uh, moments from the from the trivial sort of why isn't that person smiling at me through to serious challenges within people's work roles. Can you talk a bit about how self-compassion can help people with suicidal thoughts? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, the project I'm working on at the moment at the uh, University of Bradford is uh, I'm working with people that have had experience with uh, suicide family members or have been involved in that space themselves and it's really interesting because I had a view that perhaps um, people would want to talk to a real person as it were to uh, talk about their issues and uh, some of the folks in the advisory group have said well Diane if I go online and I'm looking for a digital solution I want to stay online I don't always want to be signposted to a website or uh, you know to ring a number and so I explored that further and the folks said that they um, would actually like a live chat person so not a robot but someone they can chat with and I thought oh okay so I had these preconceptions you know that everyone wants to talk to a real person which you know, a lot of people do but yeah it was really uh, a learning experience for me that in terms of suicide prevention people just want to have a qualified person um, online that can actually use the chat function and, and it won't be a robot but still have those empathy skills to help walk that person through that dark space at that moment in time maybe uh, one of the benefits of the chat function is there's some sort of anonymity you can or, or privacy whilst connecting you don't have to kind of reveal your entire self to a person when you're feeling so vulnerable um but you definitely want more warmth and empathy and reality than, than a bot <laughs> that's going to read a script to you. Absolutely, yeah. And being connected, I think, yeah, is the key, isn't it? But you know if it's a bot and you know if it's a person. Uh, from the research I've been doing, the Samaritans seem to be the provider that are quite active in that space, which is really good to hear. Mary, with the, the parents that you've worked with, they may or may not have great digital connections what other ways can they connect with people so so that they feel less alone yes you can do things online and that's an option um but also we are mammals and we like human contact don't we and the young people i think they need each other so they're not the only one you remember i mentioned um the components of self-compassion that Christine Neff has pioneered, the self-kindness, but the common humanity. Well, common humanity, it's the shared experience that we're not the only one. You know, when we feel we're really bad and maybe we've had a relationship breakup or we've got an illness, um, we're struggling, um, we think we're the only person at the time, but it's not. Um, that's that, that's why it's that shared common humanity. I mean, I've run mothers' groups and um, we've done exercise with them, like low sort of resistance Pilates and things. But what always comes out strong is the support and befriending of their peers. So not only that, it's that group interaction that is really, really powerful um, as well. And they did say, obviously, during COVID, we've had to give parenting sort of education online. Um, but they really do want that connectedness um, to actually help them to maintain their 
mental health and well-being. Is self-compassion something that they can talk about amongst themselves or is that quite an alien language? Um, it's interesting because they're, they're really saying like what is self-compassion and like I said even when I was doing some education and training with nurses and midwives they actually preferred that the you know is finding yourself compassion so they liked that okay but they really said that we like compassionate self-care and I went okay if that's you know if that's what relates to you um it's being compassionate to yourself um that's you know they understand that then and self-compassion skills are for life you know when when you think self-compassion enables a person to accept and not avoid negative emotions and feelings when we're hurt or we might be suffering and we all do it sometime in our life so it's a healing process and believe in that process and we will come through the other end Yes, all these things shall pass. Indeed. <laughs> yes, that saying actually, I teach my clients that just to say it will pass. You know, say if somebody wants to lose weight, as an example, instead of saying to yourself, you know, I've got to stop eating chocolate cake or chocolate, you you because that's keeping you in that negative self-talk. You turn it into, I'll eat more vegetables. I will go for a walk. So the language has to be more positive as well. I will do this, you know, more future focus rather than, I won't do that. So those are really easy techniques with self-compassion. Another simple technique that I like as well, Dan, is just waking up in the morning uh, and just, you know, having a good dose of vitamin G, which is gratitude, and write three things that I've got gratitude for, you know. And um, I know that that's a strategy that's used uh, in a lot of organisations across the United States uh, because the more you do that, the more that you condition your brain into feeling good things as opposed to focusing on the the painful elements that you might be experiencing in your private life or for that matter in your professional life and uh, i'm interested just to bring it right back round to your your research or, or, or other people's research in the field where do you see this going is it going to be more about how the brain operates like diamond's telling us or um the impact in individual people's lives or the the changes in organisational performance, where would you like it to, to go, Mary? Um, I think we look, need to look at maybe different target populations throughout the lifespan, because I do believe that everybody can benefit from self-compassion. I mean, we've been involved now with three studies and reviews, and I've just recently finished one, but we've not published yet, on self-compassion and the older people. Um, because I just finished my mental health um, postgraduate diploma in Nanten Institute in um, Australia. And it's saying the same thing. Older people, they might not be as mobile as there was before. So it's that acceptance. So I think there's some areas of interest there of how self-compassion skills can help right throughout the lifespan. But I think there's a, a need to do a little bit more research just to build on the emerging evidence that's only really been around for the last two decades. And I found it difficult to find funding that would fit in for research around the caregivers. I agree. And um, the Indigenous populations around the world, I think there's lessons to be learnt from those groups like the Aboriginal people and then the Māori population uh, in New Zealand and then um, obviously other areas as well because I think um, Indigenous populations do have a lot to share that that's probably been quite invisible to 
the Western world and um, the term self-compassion may not be what they use, but I know in my culture, Māori culture in New Zealand, they use the term aroha, A-R-O-H-A, which means um, can mean love, but you could, it also means the term in English is feel sorry for them. But I do think it's actually a type of compassion. And, um, you know, so I think there's something, a, a bit of work to be done around that. What is it the Indigenous populations do uh, that uh, other cultures could learn from? What is interesting, and Charlie, you mentioned this, you know, specific areas that self-compassion has been deployed. You know, this, the, potentially the sky is the limit, possibly, with self-compassion notwithstanding the fact that we still have to do, uh, you know, more robust research. But, um, you know, in the United States, we're even seeing that, you know, health insurance, if you are able to take to do some small courses offered by your employer, you can get a rebate on your health insurance. There are already organisations that are financially incentivising wellness, which has self-compassion central to that whole wellness piece. So maybe there's a place for some partnership between the corporate world and the uh, health and research world. There could be so much data gathered on, um, I don't know, absence rates or, as I say, productivity even. I hate to use the word utility. I hate to make something that's so heart heartfelt and heart-based heart just utilitarian. But if that gets the funding... That would be great. <laughs> when I did some work in the Emirates and I was in Orashalkema and in Brazil, they all stopped for lunch. It was very important. There was myself, I kid you not, at my desk eating my sandwich, like as if I can't stop, you know. And I thought, gosh, this is a really bad habit, Mary. Where have you picked this up from? Like you said, make time for self-compassion. You know, we've got to stay off our phones a little bit. Yeah, corporate needs to look at this. You know, the vision would be to have self-compassion, you know, in uh, organisation strategic plans. You know, I know certainly uh, in my employer, the Ohio State University within the College of Nursing, wellness and self-compassion is mentioned in the college's strategic plan, which is interesting. And it certainly shows the direction of travel in that organisation, which I was quite impressed with. Absolutely. And I think... Um... In terms of the corporate world, uh, they always talk about values and mission statements and that. And I think going to the values of an organisation and really living those values is a first step. And if self-compassion was one of the values, then that flows through the whole organisation because you use it for everything that you do. So that's a quick starter already, like uh, not just having these values that they, you know, uh, recite once a year when they're audited, like really make that part of uh what people do like showing kindness to colleagues those sort of things being accountable you know uh, that would really help I think to remember one thing if nobody else remembers anything from this podcast that you said you know who can self-compassion benefit ultimately everyone and there is a need for education and training for these life skills and this can be facilitated in a range of target populations Thank you for listening to today's episode. You can find more information about our guests and a full transcription of the show on our website. I would like to thank Dr. Martin Whiteford for his help with today's episode. And this is Distorted. Distorted.